Okay, good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. Uh, this morning I'm thrilled to be interviewing Dr Stuart Condon, who's the President of MSF Australia, Medicines on Frontiers, otherwise known as Doctors Without Borders. Uh, he's been the President since 2014. He's a medical doctor who studied in Australia and he has a diploma in paediatrics. Um, he's worked all over the world in Indonesia, Pakistan, Sudan and Bangladesh and has also worked in remote Aboriginal communities in Australia. Uh, he had a role in the uh, Ebola outbreak um, in a governance sense um, and he's also worked as a country medical director and project coordinator. Uh, welcome Dr Stuart Condon. Thank you. Uh, so I thought today we could start with perhaps, um, I'm sure a lot of people are already aware, but a general overview of MSF and their role and the work they do. Yeah, of course. Look, MSF, um, Medicine Sans Frontier, or Doctors Without Borders, it's an international medical humanitarian organisation. It's been around for more than 40 years now. Um, originally founded in the 70s in uh, France, it was a group, small group of uh, doctors and journalists who actually got together after a, a bit of a conflict point around the Biafra crisis, where some of the doctors were working for the International Committee of the Red Cross but they found that they weren't able to treat the patients that they wanted to treat. So in fact, that's one of the, the tenets of the Red Cross, that they have a sense of neutrality, um, but they don't cross lines in that way. And, and um, these doctors found that extremely difficult. So they formed their own organisation, a non-government organisation or an NGO. And I'll probably just say, if I start using acronyms, please catch me up okay. because there's lots of acronyms in this world. Um, so we, we're now uh, a massive organisation since that initial uh, small group of people. We've got doctors, nurses, midwives, pharmacists, logisticians, we, we've got technical specialists, we've got hospital administrators, we've got national and international staff in more than 100 countries around the world at the moment. And I think at last count we're actually fundraising almost the equivalent of 2 billion US dollars internationally. Wow. Um, in Australia, we're a small part of that, but, but part of the broader movement. And our aim, obviously, is to alleviate suffering uh, as a result of man-made and natural uh, crises around the world. So that might be something, as I uh, just mentioned, a war or a, an internal conflict, civil war. Yeah. Or it might be something more like a natural disaster, cyclone, flood, earthquakes, things like that. Um, the less known part of our work is where we work in uh, neglected crises um, or neglected uh, diseases. So. Um, Color Azara is the one that comes to mind. It's, it's close to my heart because that's where I worked in my first mission. Very rare um, infectious disease and it's, uh, it's got a high mortality. And MSF sometimes works in these areas where that disease is not being taken care of by the government or by other actors whatsoever. Yeah. What areas is that in? So look, it will depend. It will depend on the country. And that's, that's one of the beauties of our organisation. We're always going to look at the needs. So if we, if we were to go, come to a country and say, Okay, we're interested to work in tuberculosis in that country. Um, obviously, massive public health need, and really, you could call it an emergency these days, yeah. the way that drug-resistant TB is, is increasing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if we found, though, that the government was doing a good job and that they had the resources to take care of patients with TB and they also were able to do the job well, we wouldn't work in that area. If we went to that country and then found a, an uncommon disease where people were unfortunately suffering or dying from it and no one else was taking care of it, we'd be interested to do that. Yeah, so you try and fill the gaps. If we can, yeah. yeah. And that, that's one of our easy criticisms, in fact, that MSF is a bit of a band-aid, an emergency gap measure. Um, we take no um, sense of development. Uh, we're, we're not an organisation that's going to be in a particular country or, or village for 10 years. That, yeah. That's not our ambition. Um, but we do do emergency medical humanitarian aid. Yeah. 
great. Thank you for that. Um, and I was lucky enough uh, to see a lecture by um, Dr. Condon a couple of months ago at the University of New South Wales, uh, where he was discussing um, the refugee uh, situation in a global context. And I was wondering if maybe you could touch on uh, some of that for us today. Yeah, of course. Um, look, in the last few years, obviously in Australia and our context where we live, we've seen a particular picture on refugees and asylum seekers. Yeah. Internationally, the, the situation is probably even more dire. We've got people moving across borders because they're, they're seeking asylum, they're, they are looking for protection. And under the, the Refugee Convention and the, the accepted norms of the last decades, that would have been given quite freely. Uh, this is what happened after the Second World War. We understand the lessons that we needed to learn. But right now we've got a conflict in Syria, which has raged for more than six years. Afghanistan is, a st is still a very difficult context for, for people to live in, um, let alone the minorities who live in uh, Afghanistan, like the Hazara, yeah? yeah. Um, and then we talk about places like Myanmar, which is close enough to Australia for us to know about. Um, you know, the, the regime in Myanmar has been very difficult to work with. We've been in, in Myanmar for some years now as MSF, um, but there are particular minorities who've sought to get protection outside of the country because they've essentially persecuted some stateless uh, people there. Refugees internationally uh, has been called the worst, uh, the, the highest number since the Second World War. It depends how you measure it, but certainly the, the crisis is clear. Um, when we talk about people fleeing from Syria and Libya and trying to cross the Mediterranean in flimsy boats, yeah. uh, drowning in, in high numbers, that, that's where we start realising that this is not just uh, an immigration issue, this is an issue around the humanity that's fleeing. Yeah. Um, so internationally we're seeing different pictures, you know, that there are migration routes happening through Africa at the moment that we don't talk about very much. Um, the clear ones across the Mediterranean because it's close to Europe and there's yeah. a lot of news coverage, the ones close to Australia. but. Even in South America, there's uh, refugee routes now which are becoming swollen because people are fleeing in greater numbers. And um, how do you, sorry, this might feed into some of my questions later, but how do you get into some of those places where other agencies, you know, they're quite, not necessarily hostile, but uh, very difficult to get into because there's a lot of politics and sometimes war. How, how does an organisation go in or get access to those areas? Look, for us, it's always going to be the, the medical humanitarian imperative. Yeah. We want to go to a place and add value. We're not going to go for, for um, a political reason. We're not going to go because we think it's a place where we need to put a foothold and be there in five years' time when yeah. things might be worse. So we're always going to make an assessment independently, and, that, and that's another one of the beauties of our organisation. We don't work for a UN agency. We're not uh, delivering something based on an agenda. We've got our own independent assessments happening, and we look at the needs of the people on the ground. And, and we're talking about patients, right? Yeah. So this, this is one of the, again, the strengths of our organisation. We're not politically driven in that idea that we just want to take care of people in a particular way or a particular political uh, orientation. It's about patient care and patient yeah. needs. And we will address each country or each region's needs according to what we see. And if we see that there's no needs or no added value for us to come in, then we won't work there. Um, we completely appreciate in the refugee space there are a number of UN agencies and other actors who are involved as well. Yeah. Um, what we try to add is a sense of independent, neutral medical aid in the best way possible. And, and understanding that we're trying to help people in the best way. If we can hand over to local actors, we will do that when we can. If we don't see that a UN agency, for example, is not doing the job, if they're not doing the job the way they should, 
then we'll we'll talk about it if we can and we'll try to do the work too. Yeah, and does that sort of lead into what I want to talk about in the Ebola epidemic, um, where MSF was one of the first responders? Yeah, we were. We were on the ground, in fact. We were already there at, at the end of the year previous when we started seeing some of the, the patients coming through yeah. with Ebola disease. And it was quite dramatic because over the next really seven months, um, we started seeing the epidemic unfold and we uh, were trying to scale up, but we're also trying to get help. Yeah. And this was quite clear for us that... Uh, as an independent NGO, we had certain capacity, but we were trying to support governments that had very little capacity. Yeah. And in some of the regions affected for Ebola, the staff, the, the um, Ministry of Health staff for each clinic and each hospital were actually dying from the disease themselves because they didn't have the personal protective equipment, they didn't have the protocols in place to take care of these patients in a safe way. And that's, that's what we found probably the most difficult where we were one of the few actors there already. We were trying to get help which wasn't coming and took a long time to come. And then by the middle of the year, when the epidemic was quite clear, uh, that's when we started uh, talking to WHO, talking to the international actors, and only then did they recognise that, yes, there might be a situation which previously they said wasn't an issue, but a situation that needed real attention. Why do you think they said it wasn't an issue? Were the numbers just not there or they didn't have the capacity? Sorry. Yeah, no, no, that's a good question. I think it's a good question for the WHO too. Yeah. Um, certainly from my side, I understand that they uh, initially downplayed it. Um, it might have been a resourcing issue within the WHO that they couldn't take care of anything like that in their region. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a clear question for the WHO, not yeah, me. Yeah, it was really concerning. Mm. Um, and you were mentioning before, um, we were just having a bit of a chat, um, about how you've been thinking about since then, how to take care of your workers on the ground when you're dealing with something like Ebola. Would mm. you like to touch on that? Yeah, absolutely. So within MSF, we've got a charter, which was built in the 1970s, which talks about our field workers, the people who go and do the humanitarian aid work. Yeah. And, and one of the basics of that is that everyone is a volunteer. So if you find that you go to a particular place, whether it's a war zone, an epidemic, you find that you're unsafe, yeah. you've got the right to leave. If you're not contracted, it's not like the army, you don't have to stay. Um, but we offer that as uh, a basic for the work we do. Understanding that we work in different contexts and, and people have got different comfort levels, we try to brief everyone as much as possible, give them an idea that this is a place with certain risks and certain rewards for the patient care that they'll deliver. Um, but that's always been a basic for us. In recent years, there's a more um, developed conversation we've had internally around the duty of care we've got as an employer, um, which is something quite common to the corporate space, so, and particularly oil and gas. Yeah. So people working on an oil platform offshore in the, the North Sea or places like this, they've got uh, a real um, sense of safety in the organisation taking care of them now because of a couple of massive disasters that happened. Yeah. They realise that they need to take care of their employees in the best way and also to be a responsible employer under workplace health and safety re uh, legislation, we've got duties anyway. Uh, and that's one of the, the parts of the conversation we've added, uh, and I'm on the board, so I've got this board hat now, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm a doctor, but at the same time I'm now a director on a board, which is kind of strange, but anyway. Um, we, we want to be responsible employers. I, I was a field worker once too. I want to know that our organisation is taking care of me when I go to the field. Yeah. And so we've developed much better understanding of what it means to go to the field. Informed consent, so it's not the medical informed consent, but much more 
giving that potential field worker before they arrive in that field as much information they need so that they can answer their own questions in their head about whether they should go or whether they shouldn't. Whether they actually realise, no, this is too unsafe for me, too random, I can't uh, deal with those risks, I won't go to that place, I'll choose to go to another place. Yeah. And giving that in essentially an informed consent helps that person and the organisation get a better understanding of what they will tolerate in terms of risk. The other part of it is clear, you know, we are an employer, yeah. we send people to the field, they're paid a small amount but they, they are our employees and we've got a responsibility to them just as much as the national staff in that country. Yeah? So we've got a duty of care to those employees just as much as they have a duty to care for the patients as well. Yeah. And, and, and for us in, in Ebola, it was, it was a huge, a huge yeah. issue because you know, we, we didn't want people getting infected in these hospitals. We wanted to make sure that they understood the protocols when they went to certain places. So we wanted to make sure essentially that we were taking care of them in the best way possible. Yeah. And so I should know this, but did anyone from MSF, any of the field workers become ill? Yeah, we, we, we did have some and we had some deaths. Um, it was quite sad. In fact, uh, some of them may have been hospital acquired. We're not sure, um, but we did have people die and we did have infections as well. Oh. And the, the other aspect of that, and it's something that is being talked about a bit more now, is medical evacuation. Yeah. Um, so it, an interesting concept which normally in MSF we talk about when someone's broken their leg and they need to go home or yeah. and they can't do the work anymore. Um, a simple case like that is quite straightforward. If you have someone with Ebola or um, suspected Ebola in the last few years, it was quite challenging for us to medically evac evacuate them from somewhere like Liberia to the US yeah, or to Europe imagine. and impossible for us to do in Australia. Yeah. So that was a real challenge for us knowing that that was again one of the safeties that we offer to these people when they go to the field. Um, for the people that we did get out, um, it, it, there weren't many. Um, for the people we weren't able to get out, it was, it was tragic and you know it's a, a sad situation for the families, for, for everyone involved. Um, yeah. Yeah. And do you think there's some lessons learned? It sounds like there have been some lessons learned and some further building on safety since then. There, there have been. Look, we, we learned a lot by doing and, and certainly, you know, the volume of, of cases that we saw, the patients that we saw in West Africa during the epidemic was enormous. So, so we've clearly learned a lot in terms of the organisational response, um, how we can maybe call for help um, in different ways in the future. And we've also learned a lot clinically in trying to understand how best to treat someone with Ebola virus disease in very resource poor contexts. Yeah. You know the cases, uh, there, there were some evacuations that happened to the US and uh, from what I remember none of those who came to the US actually died. Uh, they, they were all able to be supported medically, they got through the, the disease uh, process and they were able to survive. They had very advanced medical care. Right. To, to be able to do that. Uh, things like dialysis, things like intensive care units. Yeah. In West Africa, we had very little of that. Yeah. Uh, we were lucky to have drips that we could run uh, in, in a good way. We we're using antibiotics and anti-malarials in some cases with mixed infection. But we, we did learn a lot clinically and, you know, touch wood that the next epidemic, uh, we, we can use a lot of that learning to us. Yeah, oh, such a sad. Um, situation just even hearing about I know it's just a sort of fact of life these days but just the inequity between the, the healthcare 
really sort of brings it home to me. That's right. And, and one of the other things we don't talk about with Ebola, so we always like to talk about the Ebola patients, but the regular patients suffered too. So yeah. if you were a pregnant woman, you were just delivering a baby and you weren't Ebola positive and you went to the hospital, the hospital services were markedly reduced. So they couldn't have uh, the normal level of service of maternity for deliveries, for cesarean sections, anything that was potentially a bloodborne risk. Yeah. All of these regular services in a hospital and in primary care were suffering as well. Wow, it's really just affected the whole country. Really. Massive, massive. <clears throat> well, I'm glad you guys were there. Mm. And look, we, we were glad we were there as well because at the time, obviously, there was very little support. So we did what we could. Um, so probably leading on for that, that leads on well into one of my other questions is what are some of your highlights from the field? So, and, you know, you've talked a lot about the risks and, you know, trying to stay safe. Why do you do it? Why do you go to these places? So I haven't been to the field for a while now, um, but I did five missions and I went for a brief uh, visit last year uh, to a field in Indonesia. Yeah. I, I love the idea that you can take your skills and for me, you know, I, I trained in Sydney, I've, I've worked in Australia, I've taken essentially a modern Western medical approach and being able to apply it in a place like Sudan to good effect. Yeah. And, and that, that's been the amazing part for me, to be able to treat patients to, you know, it's a cliche, but to reduce the suffering, to, to stop people dying, save lives, all of that. It's a cliche because it's good. It is, that's right. But the extra part for me is to understand it's not just medicine anymore. It's, it's a political act in a way. If, if I was to cross the front line where the government has said, well, no, they're the rebels on the other side, we're not going to treat them and we're trying to kill them and basically finish this war, a la Sri Lanka, yeah. um, then that's important for me that patients are all seen in the same way. Yeah. And it's a massive act for, for an organisation like ours to work on both sides of the front line. So in Sri Lanka, I was working in the east of the country when the war had just settled down over there or you know the, the government had won in that area was still fighting in the north but quite clear to me was the fact that these people were just people like anyone else yeah whether they were Tamil or Sinhalese it didn't matter and and for me that's that's probably the reason why I, I love the field I love the work that MSF does it's it's not just a medical act this isn't necessarily just you know uh, treating a person with a disease or populations who are suffering in particular ways it's much more than that yeah, oh, that's a really good answer. Yeah, I've been thinking about it a lot um, sort of towards in my PhD towards the end of last year. Um, I'm not sure where I want to take this yet, but I've been thinking a lot about, um, yeah, the politics of health in that we do know, you know, if you live in Australia, HIV is still a terrible disease, but you have quite a long life expectancy. Yeah. So it's less about medicine sometimes, um, and it's more about why people aren't getting the medicine. You mm. know, and I think in Africa there's a lot of politics, and I think there's a saying that um, poverty um, or famines are a political um, creation. So, mm. yeah, just thinking about all the aspects of health that aren't just medicine or eating the right thing, it's really fascinating to me. And, and not to hark on the whole uh, Ebola epidemic again, but it's a great example of, of how the West sees the third world. I, I still hate the term, yeah. but look, I'm using inverted commas for people on podcasts. It is, I can vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how the West sees the third world in terms of, well, the, this is terrible, awful thing happening in West Africa, but the only point, and I would argue this, I know there are some who don't, but the, the real point where the West started responding, particularly the Americans, was when some people who were American or others 
were coming back to Western countries and there was a potential infectious spread in those countries, Spain, Europe, the US. That's when actually the mobilisation happened. The CDC responded in massive numbers, lots of funding, lots of boots on the ground afterwards. But previous to that, they were different people. Yeah, I completely agree. I was thinking that earlier, but I wasn't going to say it because I wasn't sure if it was controversial or not. But I used to say to my partner all the time because it was, you know, obviously happening and I was reading about it and, you know, different things that I read about and it wasn't, didn't hit the mainstream media until there was an American infected. I found that really frustrating. But I I guess it's sort of a psychological thing where people are scared of things that they think can affect them. But yeah, I still found that very frustrating as well. Um, so moving on, uh, we've covered, uh, I'm just reading my list, sorry guys, I always have a list to remind me. We've covered some challenges and some highlights. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about is that I'm interested to hear about is the, the funding for MSF. So you have very um, sort of um, various guidelines around what funding you will and won't accept. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So our, our base of fundraising and you know, aid organisations have different methods, but our base is individual donors. So we're talking about a person on the street, we're talking about someone uh, donating online. We, we look to individuals because we feel like that that is uh, part of our identity. We're not an institutional uh, contracting partner. We're, we're not uh, someone who wanted to get AusAid funding or USAID funding in massive amounts. We have had institutional funding. We still to, uh, do to a degree. I mean. But in recent years, it's really reduced. So I think at the moment, it's around six to eight percent of our international yeah. funding is institutional. The rest is individual donors, and that that's a huge thing for us. It yeah. gives us the sense of independence that we can have from people like the EU and ECHO or USAID and their particular agendas and the way that they drive aid. Um, we also bear in mind that there are companies, organisations who do want to donate to us, um, and. Generally, we're very open to, to anyone who does. We, we obviously need money to do the work yeah. we do. There are some companies we won't take money from. And so we've got a list uh, of, of companies and organisations that we feel like ethically we can't take money from. Yeah. I, I can't give you the most recent updated list, but you can expect that it's the tobacco, yeah. the oil and gas, the, those kind of uh, bigger ones where there are significant eth- ethical yeah. issues around how they make their money. Um, that we have a problem with. Um, but yeah, that, that's essentially uh, the, the issue for us. We try to maintain our independence and our fundraising is a real reflection of that. Yeah, and so that sort of leads into neutrality so you can keep that sort of neutral um, yeah, that's perspective right. when you go in. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that's really it. Yeah, really inspiring. Um, so I'm conscious of time, so I just, um, there's one thing that I haven't gotten to yet, sure. which is um, how can others get involved? So I know a lot of um, um, the students that I work with at Macquarie University would be interested in this type of, mm. type of work. How do they sort of get involved with MSF? Look, we need people. Uh, I'll be honest with you, at the moment one of the big crises in our movement uh, is not money, uh, it's people. We yeah. need people to come and stay with us yeah. and not just do one mission and uh, have right. six months of amazing experience and then leave. Of course we appreciate everyone's different. But we we need good HR um, who are skilled at what they do, who are motivated to do the work we do in different countries around the world. So that's the big challenge for us. It's not just medical people that we need though, and I think that's one of the misunderstandings of what we do. We're an organisation that was founded by doctors, where, you know, it's in in the name, Doctors Without Borders, right? But we also need nurses, we also need midwives, we also need pharmacists, we also need physiotherapists. X-ray technicians, believe it or not, you know, in some of these places, yeah, yeah, we do. We we need a lot of paramedical people, 
And then we've got the non-meds who I would say run the whole show. We've got project coordinators who've got good understanding of how to run a project, teams, how to deliver medical humanitarian aid in different contexts around the world. We also have logisticians who are the foundation of everything that happens. They, they will run a car fleet, they'll make sure everyone gets paid, um, and then they'll also make sure that you've got clean water so that wow. you, in your project, can actually have uh, a good dinner that night and not get sick. That's yeah? a big job. <laughs> Massive job. And if you've got a good log, a logistician, yeah. uh, then it's fantastic. If you've got a log who's still learning, you can see the difference. <laughs> um, and so what kind of skills would you be looking at for people, apart from just the medical or, you know, the jobs type of skills obviously they need to be willing to go to these type of countries yeah. uh, is there any sort of um, underlying skill set that you'd be looking for it, it really depends and and i'd probably uh, if there are people interested refer to the website and yeah. so there's a few websites but msf.org.au and we've got some really good up-to-date information about who's needed particularly at the moment okay um, what particular skill sets we're after in, in the finance and admin sector, for example, we're probably less interested in someone who's worked on the stock exchange, but more interested in someone who can do basic accounting. Yeah. So anyone who's got the motivation, really have a look at the, the list there and it's really well informed. Fantastic. And is the first uh, mission always nine, it needs to be at least nine months? We expect six to nine. Yeah. Um, and we say that because we're just never really sure what's sure. coming up at that time, but the expectation is that you need to be committed to potentially going for nine months on your first mission. And again, like later on, the idea being it's not just a flash in the pan, we want people to stay. Yeah. And the longer you stay, I mean, I, I, I remember my first mission, it was only really after three months I was starting to understand in my head what the people I was treating were about. You yeah. know, in, in Sudan, it was so culturally different. And it took me a long time to get that cultural understanding and, and that sense of a, a competence, which I had obviously the, the limited stuff early on, but to really understand how to take care of a patient in the best way there, it took a while. Six months, a lot of people say six months is where you start hitting your strides, and then nine months, look, you, you're really, you're part of the community in a way. So yeah. six to nine is the expectation, that's the idea behind it. Oh, that sounds excellent. Uh, and one final question, um, um, is there anything that you've read or listened to that you find particularly inspiring that people could sort of go away and listen to or read? Yeah. I. I did prep him for this, no, so he's had some yeah, time right. to think. Um, I, I'm a sucker for non-fiction, I'll admit it. Yeah. Um, I don't read enough fiction, and I'll admit that too. <laughs> but uh, Cutting for Stone was one of the fiction books I read recently, um, which was fantastic. It's about a, a doctor, a surgeon, essentially, who grows up in Ethiopia. And fantastic. I didn't, I didn't really expect this. I didn't know that was going to happen in this book. So it was actually right up my alley. Yeah. Um, I also love to read biographies, but um, in non-fiction terms, I, I tend to try to look for things which are interesting real-life stories. And I think that's, that's why I still love non-fiction. Not historical stuff, no, nothing like that. Something a bit more current. Yeah, a little bit more current. Um, the, the one that comes to mind, which was... Well, actually, there's a few. I'm just looking, trying to think of my bookshelf. Um, but I've... I've I've got a couple which come to mind. There's one that I've read a number of times where I just, it's something we don't know about much in Australia, the, the biography, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Oh, which is that's a been on my list for read, ages. Amazing read. Um, it's, uh, yeah, if you've got time, it's heavy. It's a bit dark at times, yeah. obviously, the very difficult time in the US history, but amazing book. Um, the other one most recently I've read, which was inspiring but shocking at the same time, um, is... Um, Naomi Klein, This Changes Everything. 
and, and this is her most recent book about climate change. And, oh, okay. and I'm really interested in that at the moment. Yeah, look, uh, we've got to keep it on the agenda. Yeah. In, in MSF, obviously, we're not a, a group that orientates towards that kind of agenda, but we see the effects. We, we see famines and, and wars being fought uh, based on resource issues. Um, but this is an excellent book in terms of the way it's researched and the ideas behind it. And she's, she's one of my favourite authors. She's amazing. Well, you've just wrapped up perfectly for me because I have actually um, invited a climate change expert to hopefully be on one of our future podcasts. So Great. that would um, hopefully will come to fruition. Uh, that's all we have time for today. So I'd like to say a big thank you to Dr. Condon. This has been fantastic. Um, and thank you all for listening. <laughs>